0: Welcome to
1: the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news.
1: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, as more and more people work from home for a longer and longer period, the question is, what does that mean for corporate real estate office space in some major urban cities You get a sense of kind of the future here. Uh, We welcome Rebecca Rocky, Global Head of Forecasting for Cushman and Wakefield located in New York City. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. You know, I was in the city a couple weeks ago back in the office uh, for a day and, you know, I was, you know, kind of shocked to see the, you know, the the fewer people on the street and that suggested to me fewer people uh, in the office buildings give us a sense of kind of where we are kind of in in the global workforce and the office space and how you guys are thinking about it.
3: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. Um, You know, clearly, we have a number of things going on in the office sector in particular, not the least of which is dealing with the damage that's been done in the economy and the labor market. Um, As it relates to the return to the office, there are also a number of Uh, trends emerging, and most offices are operating well below capacity, right, all over the country and really in most of the parts of the world. We're seeing that uh, office utilization is below where it was, and in some cases, significantly. Um, And, you know, fortunately, office companies have been more resilient when you think about the damage that's been done to different industries, office employment has fared disproportionately better, and there is somewhat of a, an ability to work remotely to get through the times to continue to work, just not in the office right now. So that's really what we're seeing take place and uh, are some of the things that we talk about in this report.
2: Yeah, Rebecca, you did a global office impact study and found that office leasing will stay below pre-COVID levels until 2025, which when you think about it, sort of makes sense. What does that mean for the likes of Cushman and Wakefield and others like you?
3: Well, I think it was a lot of opportunity to add value to our clients and helping them think about this new world that we're facing, right? So we believe that the office is a critical part of how companies do business, how they create value in particular, and so we fundamentally think there's intrinsic value to the office place. Really, the question is, what are the kinds of things we're doing in the office, and how does behavior change from a leasing perspective as we go into this new normal? Uh, The fact that we're finding that despite... Uh, some of the structural changes we anticipate, such as work from home to emerge, that the office sector does recover from a demand perspective, to me, was a really strong finding and indicative of the fact that many companies view office as part of a broader ecosystem that will allow them to achieve the goals that they have as companies.
1: But it's interesting, you know, we've we've heard a lot of corporate uh, leaders in New York City calling for companies to bring their employers back, open up the city again, yet it just seems like, you know, just the people I talk to, they say, okay, maybe I'll go back into the city, but it ain't going to be five days a week. This work at home from thing works just fine. So it, is it going to be a sense that there will be some permanent change?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in the right now we're in what I call the adrenaline rush of COVID-19, right? So we're dealing with competing forces of trying to figure out what's going on with schools and folks who need to maybe take care of their, their parents, right? A huge concern is I need to go take mom groceries on the weekend and I don't want to be exposed and put her at risk. So we have a lot of that going on. And this report really looked at different scenarios where we do find ourselves in a post-COVID world defined as a world where we have a medical solution such that we can really subside in terms of the level of fear of the virus. But to your point, we absolutely believe there will be long-term changes and a majority of those are in the evolution of what we call agile working or part-time at home, part-time in third places and part-time in the office. We we think a minority of the folks who work from home will ultimately be permanently there. Most people wanna be in the office. Most people wanna be in the office a few days a week So it's really that evolution that we expect to be long-lasting in nature and which we tried to quantify in this report.
2: Here are two statistics that really jumped out at me, Rebecca. U.S. office vacancy is expected to rise steadily and peak at 17.6%, but get this, by mid-2022, so not even next year, but presumably well after we already have a vaccine. And you also found that asking rents are expected to decline by 9.3% peak to trough. First, that doesn't seem Like that big of a decline if we're looking at nearly a fifth of office space going away until mid-2022. Are these in the major urban centers and, and so on? Sure. Well, I think for, from the
3: vacancy rate perspective, it's important to note that we were really at a low point uh, for the cycle at just under 13%. So the increase is really relative to that, which was uh, consistent with prior Sort of peaks of expansions in terms of the pre-COVID level of vacancy, so we are expecting this shift upwards uh, by about 450, 460 basis points, and that's really that is the increase that is putting a downward pressure on rental rates. Um, so that that effect is something that we expect to play out differently across cities. One of the things we do find is that uh, in This is consistent with history as well. Uh, Suburban market, the rents there tend to be less elastic. They tend to move less during down cycles. Mm -hmm. And our, our city, central city rents do tend to move by a little bit more. And our findings were consistent with that as well.
0: Rebecca,
2: thank you. Presumably there'll be more studies like this. And we will continue to keep in touch with you and hear more. Rebecca Rocky is Global Head of Forecasting for Cushman and Wakefield. Joining us today.
1: As we approach the elections, there's a growing discussion on Wall Street on what a possible Joe Biden presidency would mean for economic policy, uh, for financial markets, to get some answers to those questions. We welcome Edmund Phelps. Edmund is a Nobel laureate and director of the Center on Capitalism and Society at Columbia University. Professor Phelps, thanks so much for joining us. What are are your thoughts here? Should uh, former Vice President Joe Biden win the election?
4: Well, I certainly hope he will win the election. I, I think the economy really depends on it. I, I've just been um, very disturbed over over these past years to see uh, Trump's uh, attempts to to guide to guide the economy, to intervene right and left. This creates enormous uncertainty. that's very bad for investment and and it's very bad for. Uh, innovation and uh, innovation has already been suffering for quite a few decades, but with Trump, innovators won't get a chance to breathe. So I, I think I think uh, it's it's very important that we vote out the uh, Trump administration and, and uh, give a new group a chance.
2: So, Ned, I first saw your. Article in The Guardian, the editorial in The Guardian, and then later on, a sort of a, a, a paper almost, if you like, in Project Syndicate. And you basically start off by excoriating President Trump's policy, you know, (laughs) quote-unquote economic policy because, as you say, he practices Mussolini's doctrine of corporatism, the government is puppet master pulling the strings of puppet companies. You also go on to talk about his populist rhetoric not translating into better pay for less advantaged workers or victims of discrimination. And you have a whole sort of takedown of President Trump's economic plans or actions. But why aren't we hearing more from Biden about what he would do? So, yes, we know that he's offering Pell to everybody and so on. But we're not getting a, a really developed economic platform as far as I can see.
4: Well, I think that uh, Biden has uh, shown an interest in um, doing something about the wages at the bottom in this country, which have been a, uh, have continued to be a terrible problem f- for decades I think I think he has uh, shown interest in addressing the poor poor rewards going to uh, uh, to the least advantaged in the country, and um, I think maybe your question is pointed to what do we hear from Biden about investment and innovation? Well, I, th- I think he's I think he's shown some definitely shown some. Uh, awareness of the need for uh, picking up innovation and of course in the long term you can't have sustained high investment if you don't have underlying innovation going on so uh, I, I i think it's fair to say that uh biden grown up in his his 70 something years He's grown up in the economy, and he understands what's going on. He understands the weakness of the economy. He understands slow growth. And, uh, you know, there have been a hundred things that he's had to talk about, and maybe he's not, not talked enough about uh, investment and innovation, but he has done some talking on economic justice, which is the other grand theme of mine.
2: Yes, and I understand that. And I appreciate that you say that he displays an awareness. But the man has been a politician his entire life. And surely he has ideas for what he would do to redirect funds in the economy. And not just on the corporate innovation side, but also, as you say, to tr- translate, you know, current politics and the situation into better pay for less advantaged workers, victims of discrimination, erase economic justice injustices, and so on. He's not coming out with any of that. Is he too scared that that will alienate some of the demographics that he might need?
4: Uh, I, I'm not a politician. I'm not even a political scientist. So I really wouldn't venture, wouldn't want to venture a guess on that at, at all.
1: All right. So, so Edmund, give us thoughts just real quickly here on trade. That's been a big issue for President Trump. How do you see a Biden presidency as it relates to economic trade?
4: Oh, well, I think that Trump's position towards trade has been um, another contributor to um, poor economic performance. Being able to trade with the rest of the world is awfully helpful in in, in, uh, developing new products in finding markets for new investment. It's hard to imagine high prosperity in the American economy without very considerable amounts of international trade, foreign trade. And of course, another thing is that Trump has gotten in the way of bringing in highly qualified people to engage in innovation in the American economy. Silicon Valley is being starved of, of, the, uh, of, of uh, much of the talent that uh, it needs. Um, I saw the other day that uh, about trade and, and, and immigration, I saw that uh, 3,000 companies are now suing the White House over the uh, tariffs that have been instituted by the uh, Trump administration. So that just that just is an indication of of, um, how oppressive and how retarding uh, Trump's influence has been on the economy.
2: Well, Professor, thank you for that. We definitely hope to hear more from Joe Biden. Of course, the first debate is next Tuesday, and I imagine that there will be a portion on economic plans. And for anybody who's interested in this, the economic case for Biden by Professor Edmund S. Phelps. Nobel laureate and of course from Columbia University as well a legend in our lifetimes really is both on Project Syndicate and in The Guardian and Paul I think it's important I think we need some details we're fewer than 40 yep. days away from yep. the selection, and both candidates need to step it up with the actual concrete proposals
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you?
1: well, Vonnie, we are so fortunate to have, uh, on a regular basis, the good folks at Johns Hopkins University come on and, and help us get a little bit smarter about this virus and potential therapies, potential vaccines. Today, we're joined by Lauren Sauer, the Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, the new story I guess I heard today is something called interferon as a possible new treatment. Could you educate us on kind of what you think this might mean?
5: Yeah, the um, two studies that came out recently on interferon were really exciting to see. And I think um, what, I had se- what I've what i seen briefly is that this may, the scientists who did the studies feel that this may um, account for nearly 15, 14 or 15% of the severe COVID cases. Um, what they're seeing is that this sort of lack of interferon in the body is is helping to facilitate severe disease, so people are getting sicker. Um, and the good thing about it is that we have used uh, interferons, especially synthetic interferons, for a long time for other diseases, and so um, if we can target these at-risk patients and use some of this research to identify them early, um, we may be able to treat them quickly with uh, therapies that we already have in our toolkit for other diseases.
2: And it's particularly amazing if it ends up being all true, and the research proves itself out, because it's the type of thing that hits young people, and also it means that it might save you from going on a respirator, which we all know then you know is a whole other stage in this illness. When might we know something about the effectiveness of uh, of an interferon, uh, you know, rehabilitation scheme, if you like?
5: Yeah, so um, the stu- the studies that came out are already telling us that interferon treatment may be an effective option. Um, the new arm of the NIH Adaptive Trial Act is also an interferon study, and I would imagine that there's lots of interferon um, studies across the country and possibly across the globe. Um, there's challenges to doing interferon-specific studies, especially when you're thinking these studies may target or only enroll people with severe disease. Um, We are seeing more outpatients with COVID and fewer um, severe disease, at least where I am. Um, And so focusing on enrolling those patients into the clinical trials quickly and efficiently, both to hopefully save lives, but also to really better understand the mechanism is critical right now.
1: So Lauren, it appears the data remains stubbornly high in terms of uh, new cases, Um, yet perhaps the death rate is declining. Is that kind of your understanding Is some of the the data we're starting to see more recently?
5: Yeah, I think one of the things we're seeing is that um, we're, we are getting patients out of the hospital quicker, which is great. Um, and that may be I think we're going to need a lot of long-term studies to understand why that's happening. But a big piece of it may be that we're getting better at managing these patients because we're learning more about the course of illness and the course of disease. So um, we're keeping people from entering into that severe disease state, you know, off a ventilator, um, off of those high-flow oxygen needs because we're managing them earlier or, or we're identifying them earlier and we're managing them better in the hospital and getting them out quicker.
2: So, Lauren, we were talking yesterday about people in the UK proactively getting injected or or infected with the coronavirus in order to try and help studies. These these people, I mean, are they risking long-term consequences?
5: I I think they absolutely are. The challenge study model that I'm talking about that we're seeing in the UK Um, is a model that we've used in other diseases to better understand um, how vaccines work so that it's a controlled environment and we understand the exposure, we understand the course of the disease and exactly where in the disease process the patients or the participants get the vaccine um, and, and what their exposure level is after getting the vaccine. The, the hard part in this situation is that we don't have a really good therapeutic toolkit. So if something goes wrong with these patients, um, we don't have a great a, a series of great options to treat them. So that that is a higher risk than than you would want in a challenge study. And there's a lot of ongoing community transmission in many places across the globe. So there are opportunities to do vaccine trials the right way in a well-controlled environment, understanding community transmission without putting people deliberately at risk and exposing them to, to the coronavirus. So it's a risk that we're taking unnecessarily.
1: So, Lauren, again, I'm just going to ask us to try to triangulate around timing. Is it still fair to suspect that we will that some series of vaccines will be available sometime early next year, maybe late this year? But it'll take time after that to kind of figure out what's most effective. Is that still the way to think about it?
5: Yeah, I think that early next year is probably on target for a few of these vaccines. Um, we're seeing the phase three trials happen right now. We're seeing good data come in. I think the challenge is that scale up piece. So. Um, once a vaccine candidate goes through the process, we still have the regulatory environment for getting that approval from the FDA. For example, um, there is discussion of u- of using the emergency use authorization in the interim space between um, or preliminary data from the phase three trials and getting approval from the um, for the vaccine to roll out more broadly. But we also have to consider scale-up of manufacturing, distribution plans, prioritizing the people who will receive it, what are the most important populations. Um, And so there's a lot of things that have to happen between now and a massive rollout of a vaccine trial. And I think mid to late and mid to the end of next year is probably reasonable for large-scale rollout.
2: Lawrence, thank you as always. Absolutely love getting your updates straight from you know the epicentre of where all the research is happening. Lawrence Sauer is assistant professor of emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And Bloomberg Markets is brought to you by Witham, a forward-thinking advisory and accounting firm helping clients to be in a position of strength in the new reality of business. Learn about their innovative solutions by visiting witham.com. So, it's time to talk commodities. Some are seeing good news. Some are not seeing so much good news. Let's bring in Mike McGlone, who knows all about the precious metals, the not so precious metals and every other commodity out there. He's a commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, we haven't talked too much about China recently, mainly because apart from TikTok and Oracle and so on, there haven't been many trade developments. But at the same time, underlying commodities are moving still because of this. For example, China went on a buying spree And so that seems to have revived export profits for some top crop traders. So that's good news, right? Are we seeing prices reflect that?
7: Oh, certainly in soybeans. Hi, Bonnie. Um, yes, yeah, soybeans at $10 a bushel. They're up about 5% in the year. They got about 10.30. That's been a good sign. It's almost completely on exports because it's a big crop this year, not really in soybeans, but corn. So that's a big deal. And also the market's anticipating a potential peak in the dollar. And you, the U.S. now exports about 50% of its soybeans. So the value of the dollar, the value of the Brazilian real is a big thing. Just the fact that China's been back in, has been good in, in crops. And it's really better to take a lot taking them off the bottom but for new highs to really go up to for more strength ags need a, a peak dollar
1: all right so but as a look at the dollar index here at 94 that's not peak dollar is it
7: no, hey, Paul. Um, and it's really and from, from the ag standpoint, we watch the trade-weighted broad dollar, because the dollar index is 60%, almost two-thirds euro. Trade-weighted okay. broad is mostly China. It's two, 20% China. It doesn't take every day, but gives you a good indication. The key thing is what's been really driving that strong dollar the last 10 years so, or so is the outperformance of the U.S. stock market. So what we're seeing lately is a bit of a divergence. There's been flows into commodities. Commodities are outperforming during this last little swoon, their correction in the stock markets. A key is, Greg's and ags aren't really going to really matter to the stock market so much. But in copper, that's been a key thing I've been watching. Copper is the highest correlation to the stock market ever in a 52-week, 12-month basis. And it's, really not, and it's still hanging around $3 a pound versus the 10% correction in NASDAQ. That's a good sign that maybe we're seeing some divergence. I think people are looking more for the physical assets, not just gold, silver, platinum, and platinum, not just the precious, but more the base metals like copper.
2: Well, I was going to say, with the exception, actually, of gold, which seems to really have just gone and got its coat and left the room, right, Mike?
7: Uh, well, yeah, In the short term, gold's still up 25% in the year, and the S&P 500's unchanged. Bitcoin's up 50% in the year. So, and my bias at the beginning of the year was the quasi-currencies, gold and bitcoin, should continue to outperform. I don't see why I should change that. They gold just got a little bit uh, extended. You know, it was 50. It was well above its 52-week mean, the highest in a long, a long time. It's 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 consolidating a bull market the way I see it right now. It's going to back up into good sport around 1,800 an ounce. But if you look at the foundation for gold. Rapidly rising U.S. debt to the GDP and increase in QE on a global scale scale it's unprecedented. Gold has a very solid foundation for the next five ten years.
1: And just help us revisit the bull case for Bitcoin. Uh, we can talk Bitcoin. Vani doesn't have a no Bitcoin policy like Tom Keen. Um, so give us that bull case for Bitcoin again, Mike. Bottom line,
7: very limited supply, actually less, potentially less supply than gold. Higher prices will not bring on more supply. And then it's about demand. So all my indications for demand are higher. And Bitcoin has been becoming adopted in the space. There's more and more people getting in there. Demand indications are quite positive. Futures, open interest, um, exchange-traded products coming on the floor, and and addresses used And things like that So Bitcoin is, be- is getting there The cool thing about Bitcoin Is it's had a significant correction And it's had a period of disdain And so that's usually A good foundation For higher prices And the correlation Between Bitcoin and gold Is the highest ever Depending on how you measure it So I th- see Bitcoin is, po- is becoming a digital version of gold It's just more of a Kind of a baby And it's catching up It's taking baby steps now at the-, at the moment
2: Well I on that note Would like to compare Ethereum with Bitcoin And so if you look at returns Over the last year Ethereum is up 103% Bitcoin, up 25% versus the U.S. dollar. Does that just suggest that Bitcoin is a little more mature as a cryptocurrency?
7: It is, and there's a big difference. Ethereum kind of is part of the whole other crypto space, and there's 7,000 of them. Ethereum's the number two cryptocurrency. But if you look at the current trends, Ethereum will be surpassed next year by the stablecoin tether. So Ethereum's got good. The things it has going for it is DeFi, decentralized finance, finance and DEXs, decentralized exchanges, Ethereum's like the first platform for that, but it has a lot of competition. Ethereum got a little bit expensive, around 500 It's meeting good support around 300 But I think their overall bias is for it to continue to increase. But Bitcoin should continue to outperform the overall broad market. And the problem is there's just too much supply in the broad crypto market. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Mike, we can't let you go without talking soft commodities, agricultural. Do we have evidence? I mean, is this market now just completely driven by... China on, China off—is that kind of the only thing we need to focus on?
7: It's right now. It is. China has really helped bring it out of the doldrums. I mean, we had multi-year lows lows in corn just a few months ago, and soybeans are getting pretty beat up. Yet we have, a, you know, have a pretty good crop. But this year, actually, the revisions for for the U.S. production has actually come down since that August report. So it's a good sign. It's going that way. But I don't see U.S sauce, i.e. corn, soybeans, really having a good bull market until the dollar peaks because the U.S. now exports more than 50% of its soybeans and over 50% of its wheat. So the dollar really matters there.
2: Well, I mean, just on that, you know, how can the dollar peak again or even get much stronger when the Chinese have the yuan trading around, you know, 680 at this point and, and looking to go even lower, i.e. stronger?
7: Well, so the, the yuan has actually been strengthening recently because it's 680. It used to be seven recently. But the key thing to remember from the dollar standpoint is the dollar is measured against other. Other, other currencies, which are all paper currencies. And that's where you come to the, the physical assets, like most notably the metals, the gold, the Bitcoins of the world, they're rising versus all paper currencies. So it's that race for cheaper currencies. Everybody's QE everybody's at zero rates, which means physical assets like copper and gold and Bitcoin are gaining that value. And that's what I see going forward. And hopefully that'll trickle down to the other commodities. It's just probably not gonna trickle up to crude oil because there's too much supply. And we all know the trend in decarbonization.
1: Really quick, I'm going to slip in uh, a discussion about cattle. What's going on? How's the herd look?
7: Yeah, sorry. That's one thing I don't watch much of cattle. <laughs> uh, Paul, I'm sorry about that one. Just one thing I've never been able to figure out is a good, high, robust correlations to the price of cattle.
6: <laughs> oh, all right. my
0: gosh.
1: I, I, I see it's possible to stump Mike McGlone. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence all over the commodity uh, complex for us, uh, Vani. It's great to have Mike on.
2: And cattle futures don't seem to be shifting around much, Paul. Of course, I looked it up. It's LC1 if you want the generic cattle <laughs> future. Although I'm sure every farmer out there would say that no cattle is generic, they're all individual. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul
1: Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.